revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, Jacob is afraid, he is terrified, he is facing impending destruction because of what his sons did to the city of Shechem. All of the peoples around are ready to get up, take up arms, and destroy Jacob and his family, the entire community. This is a terrifying thing for Jacob, but it's not just about Jacob, but this has to do with the very promises of God to save for himself a people. You remember Genesis 3.15, where the Lord said there will be a seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, and that from the seed of the woman would be born eventually the Messiah, the Savior. And so once again, here in chapter 35, as so often in the Old Testament, that line of redemption which leads to Christ hangs by a thread. It is in great peril. And as we sang Psalm 43 just previously in the service, it reflects very much Jacob's state of mind as he's surrounded by the ungodly who seek to destroy and seeks to worship God and find hope in him. Now, as Jacob is in this situation, God speaks. God said. And God said, Jacob, I want you to go and worship me. Now, there's something missing in Jacob's life. He had, he had left his father's house. He had gone to Padanaram to, to find a wife, to perpetuate the line of the holy seed. There at Bethel, as he was escaping from Esau's wrath, he had had that vision of that ladder between heaven and earth and the angels going up and down. God had given him great and precious promises, saying, I'll, I'll bless your trip. I'll bring you back safely. And Jacob had made a vow. If, if God does this, I will certainly respond with worship. But as he came back from Padan Aram, he got distracted, didn't he? Instead of heading back to Bethel and, and then heading back to his father's house, he, he put down roots right next to Shechem, right on the edge of the world and all of the things of the world. And that's where things almost went totally wrong. Jacob was, is in danger of almost being totally destroyed. He's drowning within reach of the beach. He is distracted. He's being turned aside from the, the focus of his life, what his focus should be. And so God tells him, you need to get refocused. You need to come worship. And isn't that true, brothers and sisters? Every week we hear the same thing. Every week, God, the same God speaks the same word of the same love and the same grace and the same Christ to the same sinners. There's nothing new, but every week we need it, don't we? I need it because you get to Saturday, you get to Saturday night and Sunday, you're like, whoa, I need to be refocused. God calls us into worship him to get us refocused. Go back to Bethel. Jacob, go back to the house of God as you're on your way back to the Father's house. And, and, and what God uses to incite Jacob to, to leave all the things he's got going there by Shechem, because he had a good thing going, worldly, in worldly terms and material terms. What God uses is tribulation, suffering. Jacob is very wealthy. 
He's well settled. He's got all kinds of comforts and conveniences there. But what does it profit a man to gain the world and lose your soul? What does it profit to have all these things when in a few days or a few hours' time you might be dead? So God uses that threat of the surrounding nations to push Jacob back to Bethel and to worship. Go worship. God does that in our lives too. He uses tribulation to wean us from the world and to get us to run to him for refuge, to worship him. To worship the God who is near, the God who appears in the darkness with the comforts of the gospel and his promises. This is the God of whom the psalmist speaks, when I am afraid, I will trust in you. This is the God whom Job worshipped when, when God took everything away from him and all that was left was suffering. Job fell on his face and worshipped. That's what suffering drives us to it. It drives us to worship. And so Jacob responds, verse 2, and if you have your Bible open, you'll understand the sermon better because I'm going through the chapter. In verse 2, Jacob responds with the obedience of faith. Like his father, his grandfather Abraham, he just listens. Right away, let us go, arise, he says to his family and community, let us arise and go to Bethel, go up to Bethel, verse 3. Now that's a great act of faith because he's afraid that all the surrounding peoples are going to destroy him. And humanly speaking, his only chance is to build some defenses and try to make a last stand. To be on the road with women and children, you're most vulnerable. It makes you more likely to be destroyed doesn't make any sense from a tactical or a strategic viewpoint, but, but Jacob listens to God. He obeys. Let us go, he says, that I may make an altar there to the God who answers me in the day, on, in the day of my distress. Now, the way that the Holy Spirit puts this in the Hebrew, it, it's not, it's not, something that God does that he answers in distress, but it's, it's, the way it's written is that it's an adjective. It is who God is. It is the answering me in distress God. It is his very character. It's not something he does now and again. It's just who he is. He answers his children who cry out in their distress. He cannot not answer because that's who he is. He inclines his ear to us. He hears us as we cry out in our fear, in our suffering, in our anxieties. He is the God, says Jacob, who has been with me wherever I have gone. Jacob knows the truth of Psalm 23. Psalm 23 hasn't been written yet, but he knows the truth because that truth is eternal. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. God is the God who is Emmanuel. He is God with us, the God who says, I will be there always. And so Jacob gets him and his family and his community ready for church, ready to worship, and, and part of that preparation is putting away the foreign gods. Now, I would hope that none of us did that this morning. I hope there are no foreign gods to put away. 
No one had to take a little idol down off the mantelpiece this morning and throw it into the, the woodshed because we're going to worship God. Why is Jacob doing this? Why are there foreign gods to put away? What's wrong? This is the people of God. Where did the idols come from? Well, they had just received into their community many women and children from the city of Shechem. These were people that did not know the Lord, and they would have had their little household gods and their different amulets and bracelets and trinkets that were stamped with and engraved with things that had to do with idol worship. So there's that. But there's something more. You remember when Rachel <coughs> fled from her father, Laban, she stole the household gods. She still has those. So it's not just the people that don't know God in, in the community here, but it is our mother in the faith, Rachel. She still has those little household gods. And Jacob says, you know, we need to get rid of all of these things. We need to put them aside. Brothers and sisters, you know, we may not have little statues in our houses that we use to worship, but we certainly have things that we trust in, aside from Jesus, either partially or wholly. We, we put our trust in so many different things, and, 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 and our minds, our hearts are certainly idle factories. We, we, we cling to the things of this world, the created things, and we find our meaning, our hope, and our purpose so often in the things of this life. And we know if we make an inventory of our hearts and lives, we know how many things there are that turn aside our confidence from Christ and that we put our confidence in things. And so every, every Sunday as we prepare for worship, every day as we prepare to worship God with our lives, we need to be doing this inventory. What are the idols that we need to throw out? And so... They put aside the foreign gods, they purify themselves, and they change their garments. And that makes sense. You, you wash yourself, you're ceremonially clean, you put on clean clothing, not the, the blood-stained clothing of the egregious and wicked sins that just happened in the last chapter, that's for sure. But brothers and sisters, the Bible never allows us to be content with just the superficial. You know, we have a lot of talks in young peoples and maybe in some Bible studies about what you're supposed to wear to church, and we always have very, very uh, detailed opinions about what everybody else should do and how everybody else should dress. But, but when God speaks of these things, he's always looking to the very deepest plane in every matter, the deepest point of every subject. He's he says to the, the people of God so often, rend your hearts, not your garments. Don't just be satisfied with the external, but look at what is in the heart. Now, of course, what's in the heart manifests itself in the way that you carry yourself externally. And so as we come to worship God, don't spend too much time wondering about the different details of what we're exactly wearing, but look at how we come into God's presence. We come into God's presence as purified, as washed in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. As we come from a, a week of making mistakes and yes, even committing sins and sometimes even deliberately raising our hand against God and choosing what we know is against his will. And we come into his presence 
And every Sunday again, God declares to us, my children, my people, you are washed in the blood of the Lamb. You are clean. You are holy. You are righteous. You are pure. And you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And if, if that's the way you come to worship, and if you know what that means, then certainly the way you act, live, and dress will reflect that according to who you are in your circumstances. And so they're getting ready to worship. And in verse 4, they, they gave their foreign gods and their earrings. The rings that were in their ears. And you think, well, why did they have to give their earrings? We read other parts of Scripture where earrings are mentioned, and, and the Lord doesn't speak of them as idolatrous in and of themselves. In fact, in Ezekiel chapter 16, when God describes beautifying his holy bride, the Bible speaks of putting rings in her nose even. So why are these earrings things that are idolatrous? Well, remember those new people that had just come into the community. Their amulets, their bracelets, their earrings were often engraved with the things that they worshipped or things that had to do with idol worship. So those things had to be put aside. You can't come into God's presence holding on to the idols or things which worship the idols. But what does Jacob do with them? He doesn't destroy them, does he? He buries them. He puts them aside. And how often do we not do that? There's something in our life which is wrong. We know it's wrong. I could have changed this and I can't change it. God, help me to change it. God, help me to put aside this, this wrong thing that I'm doing, this wrong way of living. And so often we, we, we see something in our life which we need to say no to. We put it aside, but we don't totally shut the door to it. We leave the door ajar just in case, just in case maybe we want to come back to it. Have you ever done that? It's, it's something we do as sinners. And Jacob's burying these things. He's not destroying them. The Bible's very brutally honest, brothers and sisters. Jacob is a man like us. He's our father in the faith. He's a patriarch. He's a holy patriarch. But just like us, he's a weak sinner, a weak sinner in and of himself. And so that's who Jacob is, and yet God loves him anyway. That's what grace is, my brother and sister. That's what grace is, that God loves us even though he sees all of our weakness, all of our infirmity, all of our slowness to grow in holiness and sanctification. He loves us anyway because he loves us not based on who we are, but on who he is and what he has decreed from all eternity in Christ. That is our hope, that he loves us in Christ and that is pure grace. And so as they travel, verse 5, on this unworthy group of sinners, God sets his name and his blessing and no one can touch them. Touch not my anointed, do my prophets no harm. The church is the apple of God's eye. No one can do anything to the church or to any member of the church without the express will and permission of God. Brother and sister, that is an incredible truth that we can live in to make us bold and brave and confident as we face anything and anyone. We do not fear. Because if God is on, us, on our side, against us shall be none. If you go forward in obedience to the word of God, if you go forward in the obedience of faith, if you go forward to listen to God, to serve God, 
to do God's will, to worship God, then not all the power of hell gathered together can touch you. Because all creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will, they cannot so much as move. And so all those nations just chomping at the bit, bloodthirsty, thirsty for blood to destroy the people of God, they can't move. And it reminds you of the Lord Jesus. You remember when they wanted to throw him off the cliff and he just walked away through the midst of them. They couldn't lift a finger because God didn't let them. That power and that protection you have as you live your life, not one thing can happen without the ordained will of God. Not one danger can come upon you. Not one cancer cell can multiply without the express command and permission of God. So as Jacob travels, it's traveling in the, the truth that we sing in that ancient hymn, that old hymn, Amazing Grace, through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. It is grace that has brought me safe thus far. That's what Jacob confessed, right? God has been with me. Wherever I have gone, it is grace that has brought me safe thus far and grace will lead me home. Now, just step back here as, as we see them traveling and think about what's happening in the first part of this chapter. Jacob is afflicted. He's, he's terrified. He's scared. There's a massive danger of total destruction, and, and, and God doesn't change that. He doesn't take away those people. He doesn't destroy the nations around and say, okay, Jacob, now everything's fine. He doesn't do that. He speaks. He speaks his word. And he leads Jacob out of danger and through danger by his word and through the obedience of faith in his word. And you know, so often, brother and sister, we, we see our lives and there are things that terrify us, that we're worried about. And we say, Lord, don't you love me? Take those things away. And God says, no. You will live by my word. I will speak my word. Listen to my voice. Follow me. Follow me. Worship me. That's what God says. And so they come to Bethel, and he built an altar. He builds an altar to worship, and of course, every altar with its bloody sacrifices speaks of that coming perfect sacrifice, the Lord Jesus Christ who reconciles a holy God with unworthy sinners. He calls the place El Bethel, God of Bethel. And you remember his promise there in Genesis 28, Lord, if, if you are my God, if you, uh, if you are blessing my journey, I cannot but worship you and commit my life to you. You've been with me every step of the way. You've granted success on my journey. You've protected me. You've blessed me in ways I couldn't imagine. Here I am to say thank you. Here I am to worship you. And so there is thanksgiving here in this worship service. God keeps his promises. Back the first time he was in Bethel, he was alone. All he had was a stone for a pillow. He was dead scared. His brother was coming to murder him. And now here he is, an entire community, wealthy and blessed in every way. Look at verse 6. It's not just Jacob here. It's he and all the people who were with him, a great number. 
God has been good and God has kept his promises. So he comes, he listens, he goes to worship, he builds the altar, and you can, you can think, well, he's been obedient. He's worshiping God. He can expect blessing, right? Well, what does God do? Look at verse 8. God takes something away from Jacob. God takes away Deborah. Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died. That's what Jacob gets for worshiping God. Now, we don't have the, the situation which still exists in some parts of the world to have household servants. For us, it's a very strange idea. There are still parts of the world, including in Brazil, for instance, where they do have household servants, and, and some of them are so intimately connected with the family that they, they, they're like family. And that's the kind of servant that Deborah is. She was Rebecca's nurse. So she, when Rebecca was a little girl, then Deborah was caring for her and, and would be seen almost as kind of a, a, a second mother figure or kind of an auntie. And this woman who took care of Rebecca as a child would have been to Jacob as kind of a, a grandmother figure or, or, or a great auntie, a loved matriarch in a way, a loved uh, woman in the, in the family. We don't know why she is suddenly here with Jacob. Most likely, Rebecca has died, and Deborah at some point had come to live with Jacob. But, but when she dies, that's a little part of Jacob that dies with her. It's like losing a mother, a woman who was so special to him, who cared for him when he was a child, who knew all of his joys and his griefs and his sorrows of his childhood, a woman who knows him very well. God says to Jacob, come worship me because you're afraid and you're in a problem here. Jacob listens, and then God takes away a woman who is like a mother to him. What is God doing? Well, God is doing what he always does, brothers and sisters. You remember what he did at Peniel? He diminishes Jacob. He dislocated his hip. He gave him a permanent disability. Now he's, he's taken away his mother, Rebecca. Now he takes away his second mother. Why does he do these things? Well, look what happens, brothers and sisters. Look at, look at verse 8 and then verse 9. Deborah disappears. She, she's, she goes off scene, off the stage. And God appears, verse 9. God appears. And we need to learn that over and over. We want to hold on to things. We want to hold on to people. We want to hold on to the things that we think that we need, that we can't live without. We, we need our health. We need our physical integrity and, and our body to work properly. We need our income. We need our jobs. We need our family. We need our friends. We got so many things that we need to be happy. God, don't you take those things away from me. And God says, that's exactly why I'm going to take them away from you. Because my child, you must learn this. And brothers and sisters, this is every one of us needs to learn this. We need to learn. We need to come to the place of the psalmist in Psalm 73. Psalm 73 there at the end of the psalm where the psalmist says, verse 23, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. 
and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing, there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And over and over and over, God instructs us in that truth. It hurts when he diminishes us. It hurts when he subtracts from our lives. And sometimes the thing he subtracts are very, very widely known and everybody can see it and suffer along with us. And sometimes the things he subtracts are pains that only we know and carry. But he's always doing the same thing. Brother and sister, don't fight it. Don't fight it when God diminishes you. When God takes away what you think you cannot live without. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And so God appears to Jacob, diminished Jacob. Jacob in his lostness and his loss. God appeared, look at the end of verse 9, and blessed him because that is blessing to be in the presence of God, to be in fellowship with God, to be reconciled with God. And God says, Jacob, they've been through this before, haven't they? This Jacob and Israel thing. Jacob, you've been Jacobing again, trying to get ahead, living right up against the world there next to Shechem, deceiving and breaking covenant for personal advantage. And God says, Jacob, that's not who you are anymore. I've set my name on you. I've given you the name Israel. God prevails. God wins. You have the victory, not in your works of the flesh, but you have the victory by holding on to my promise by the power of the Spirit. And then God renews his covenant and his covenant promises with Jacob as he did with his fathers, Abraham and Isaac. Verse 11, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you and kings shall come from your own body. This is the language of Eden. That's what God made the world for, to be not to be empty, but to be full. And the way he decided to fill it was that Life would produce and flourish in love, and love would produce and flourish in life. That's the way he ordained things to be after he destroyed the world and ratcheted it back almost to a state of uncreation. Then after the flood, he says the same thing to Noah, be fruitful and multiply. And now he says it to the patriarchs. That's the, that's the whole that's, the, that's in the DNA of, of, of the creation, that the creation must be full of life, full of worshipers, full of sons and daughters who love God, who love each other, who worship Him together in joy. That is the purpose of this world, to be full of people made in the image of God. That's why as we live in a culture which hates life and which hates people and which wants to depopulate, we come into conflict more and more with the thoughts 
and the culture around us because that is the total opposite of what the world is all about. Be fruitful and multiply. And, and this promise was to Abraham, be fruitful and multiply. He had the child of promise. Then the promise to the next generation of patriarchs, to Isaac. He had two children. One child turns into two. And those two children Isaac saw turn into 12 in his son Jacob. And so we have a child and we have a family in the, the next generation, in the next Toledot. And then, and then Jacob will turn from 12 into an entire nation. A child, a family, a nation. God is doing what he promised to do giving them to be fruitful and multiply. And kings shall come from your own body. The, the language here is very graphic in the Hebrew. Kings shall come from your loins. That area of his body, the pelvic area, where God had dislocated his hip and made him weak. And God is saying, from your weak, disabled body. You can't even walk straight, Jacob. From your weakness, I will raise up power the power of the glorious royal house of David, but greater than that, the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, the great son of David, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. That's what's coming out of this weak body of this weak man, Jacob, Israel. I will give you a great people and I will give you a land, a people and a land. Once again, the promises of the covenant. Then verse 13, then God went up in the place where he had spoken with him. Now look at verse 13 there. Does that make sense? How can God go up? Isn't God everywhere? How can God leave a place if God is omnipresent? Well, what the Lord is driving home to us, brothers and sisters, is that certainly he is everywhere all the time but he is especially present in a special way where he is present in his word, where he reveals himself in his word. Look at verse 13. God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. Verse 14, Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him. Verse 15, so Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. God speaks, God speaks, God speaks, where God reveals himself by his word. There he is present with special power and special grace. Well, where would that be today? We'd have to travel to, the, to Israel to go to Bethel. But week after week, God calls us into his presence and from heaven, he speaks. He lifts us up in Christ into the heavenlies and in a special way, a way which is far more intense and powerful than all the other ways that he speaks to us during the week. And he speaks to us all the time. But when we're gathered in public worship, then we are in the workshop of the Holy Spirit and the voice of God goes forth to bring light out of the darkness, to bring life out of death, to change hearts of stone into living hearts of flesh which love the Lord. And to despise that, to deliberately absent myself from the place and the time where God 
reveals himself and where God comes to us and where God manifests himself in the word and the sacraments to purposely, to deliberately despise that and turn aside from that and, and not show up with no lawful reason is unthinkable for the believer. It is to despise the proclamation of God's holy word and in that despising, to cut myself off from him and his people. That's why next Sunday we'll read the Lord's Supper form and we'll say, you know what? This table's not for people that despise the proclamation of God's holy word. It's not for them. My sheep, says Jesus, hear my voice and they follow him. You know, we get up at four in the morning to drive hours to go hear a, a band that's playing in Calgary that we really love. We, we do all kinds of things to show up at the, at the sports tournament and, and, and we'll drive for days to get to these events that we consider so important. But how quickly do we not decide for some frivolous reason to absence ourselves from the preaching of God's word? God is present most powerfully where he speaks. And so Jacob sets up a pillar, verses 14 and 15. That, that pillar is a monument, it's a marker, it's a testimony. This is the house of God. This is where God meets with his people. This is where God speaks to his people. There's the altar, there's the sacrifice, there's the drink offering, which is a thanksgiving offering. There's the poured oil. Oil poured out means consecration to God. And all of this stuff happening here at Bethel are the very vague outlines, very dim light but they're the vague outlines of the word and the sacrament and the liturgy of the church Catholic, which we still practice today. It's coming to hear the word of God, coming in the power and the cleansing power of the sacrifice of the lamb. It is coming in the drink offering poured out of thanksgiving of praise and prayer and, and singing of psalms. And it is coming in him who is the anointed, the Mashiach, the Messiah, the Christos, the Christ, our Lord Jesus. All of those things are hidden here in Old Testament terms in this part of our chapter. And then verse 16, okay, Jacob has obeyed, he has worshiped, he's experienced fellowship with God, he's heard God's word, and now things are going to go okay, right? Now everything's going to be fine. No. God diminishes Jacob again comes off the spiritual high of meeting with God and God says, okay, now your wife's going to be taken from you, Jacob. And she had called Joseph her first child, Joseph, because Joseph means he will add. And that was a prayer. Lord, if you give me one, give me another, add another child. God's answered that prayer now, but that answer kills her. She had said to Jacob at one time, give me children or I shall die. God gives her a child and she dies. And so this pain and this grief, and there are questions, why? What is God doing? How can this be good if my wife is dying? Wouldn't it be better never to have been pregnant so I can have my beloved wife with me? How can this be good? You know, brother and sister, so quickly when we keep our eyes below the horizon, we, we look at the things of this world and, and we think that that. We can be happy only when we're healthy and well-fed and comfortable and, and we got all, everything in a row, everything's working, everything's nice. 
And that's what we need. And, and, and we, we wouldn't say it, but we, we often act like it. But that's not the gospel, brothers and sisters. That, that's a false gospel. The health and wealth gospel is a false gospel. Life is not about being comfortable, happy, you know, with money in the bank and just basically living well. It's very nice if God gives it, but that's not what life is about. Life is about Christ. Life is to know the Father and the Christ that he sent into the world at any cost. To give up everything, to deny myself, to abandon everything and everyone, to follow him. That is true life. Now you look at this scene here. Here's Rachel. She's dying as she gives birth to the son of her sorrow, Benoni. But his father calls him Benjamin, the son of my right hand, Benjamin. Look at this scene here. What would change in your life if this little boy whose birth killed his mom, if he hadn't been born, if this didn't happen? Imagine that. If Benjamin hadn't been born, then Rachel would have kept on traveling with Jacob. He would have been really happy, right? What would change in your life? Well, the first thing that would change is that most of the New Testament would disappear because the apostle Paul is from the tribe of Benjamin, the one who is greatly used by God to tell us about the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything that he wrote would be gone. But there's more. If this little boy, Benjamin, hadn't been born, then there actually, Jesus would not have been born, and there would be no church, and there would be no hope and no salvation. Because God used Esther and Mordecai, Benjamites, Benjaminites, uh, from the tribe of Benjamin. He used them in the time of Esther to protect his people from being wiped out, the holy seed from being totally destroyed. And so Jacob and Rachel have no idea what God is doing here. All they know is that it hurts, and it hurts badly. But God is working in terms of years and centuries and millennia. God is working out his plan for their eternal joy and salvation. When our mother Rachel in the new heavens and the new earth when she sees with her eyes what God has done through that little boy whose birth killed her, imagine the joy of her heart, the eternal joy, as she worships God for using that pain for his glory and for our salvation. That's what God still does with us and sisters. He's not going to tell you that. He's not going to send you an email or a letter and explain exactly what he's doing, but he's doing this for his glory and for your eternal salvation. So there they are. And this, this, this is not a coincidence that this happens on the way to Ephrath. Ephrath is Bethlehem. They're in the area where in some centuries time, the Christ will be born. And there in verse 21, Jacob pitches his tent beyond the tower of Eder, the tower of the flock. These, this is in the area around Bethlehem. Jacob is in the area where in uh, Almost 2,000 years after our text, the shepherds will hear the good news of the birth of a child who will die to save us from our sins. And while Israel lived in that land, verse 22, Reuben, Reuben committed a great sin. He went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Very doesn't go into detail, doesn't say what... Jacob did about it. He'll do something later when he blesses and curses his sons at his death. But Reuben does a great crime, a thing which ought not to be done 
in Israel. And he's the firstborn. Look there in verse 23. It's rubbed in here. The sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn. This is the man who is the chosen one to receive the blessing of the firstborn, the birthright of the firstborn, to give to, to perpetuate the holy line which leads to the Messiah. From him must come the holy seed, and yet he chooses filthiness, foulness, adultery, fornication, and incest. And he disqualifies himself. He doesn't become the one who's in the line of the Messiah. Simeon and Levi disqualify themselves because of their bloodthirsty treacherousness. And so it comes to Judah, Judah who is the fourth in line. He is the one who perpetuates the Holy Seed. So what is, what is God teaching us when he mentions these very shameful, embarrassing things in our family history as children of Abraham? Well, he's teaching us what he's always teaching us, that, that his salvation is by grace alone. He doesn't save worthy people. And that's a good thing. Look at this bunch. There's Reuben, there's Simeon, there's Levi. These are people who have done all kinds of things wrong, shameful things. And God still calls them patriarchs of the church because God saves sinners. God saves people who are unworthy. This is sovereign, electing grace, which doesn't depend on how good you are. This is sovereign, electing grace, which chooses me, which chooses you as unworthy as we are to be sons and daughters of God. And that's a great comfort. And so in verse 23, we have the list of Jacob's sons. There are 12 of them. They're not listed in the order of birth. They're divided by mother. This is ominous because the division here is what will come out in the Joseph story, which is coming next. They're hating each other. They're attacking each other in the little subunits of Jacob's family. A house divided against itself cannot stand. So here we come to the end of the Isaac Toledote. We have Jacob with his 12 sons. There's a divided house. It is a house and a family which has filled with envy and hatred and treachery and violence and anger and fornication and adultery and incest. This is, from this raw material, God will form a holy nation and a royal priesthood. How? Well, certainly not because of the things he's working with. He doesn't have a lot to work with. But in the blood of Christ and the power of Christ. He transforms sinners into saints. That is Jacob's only hope, and that is our only hope, brothers and sisters. And so he comes to his father there in Hebron. He, he comes to the place where the patriarchs owned only a graveyard. The only thing that they had of the promised land was a place to die, a place to be put in the ground and decompose. That's where he comes. All they've got is a place to die. And that's exactly what Isaac does just some years after Jacob arrives. Now, in the, the chronology, Isaac actually dies after Joseph goes to Egypt. But the Holy Spirit's point here is that Jacob, uh, Isaac's off the scene now. Now the focus is on the children of Jacob. What do we see here in this chapter, brother and sister? 
We see this. We see what Hebrews chapter 11 tells us. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeting them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. The Bible says in Hebrews 11 that they were looking for something more. They were seeking a homeland, a better country, a heavenly one. And all the historical record, all the family history, all the patriarchs are shadows and pictures of the real thing. That we as God's church, as God's children, are journeying through this world, through the the dry desert of death, of a fallen creation where everything fails and everything is temporary and everything rusts and everything breaks down and everything falls away and everything crumbles back into dust. Even our bodies and the bodies of our loved ones, everything falls apart in a fallen world the fallen world through which we travel. Everything falls apart except God, except the promises of God. That stands a land and a people, a new world and a company of nations, a multitude which no man can number, every tribe, every tongue, every nation gathered in to the church Catholic, the body of Christ, Mount Zion, the city of God. God gives us the promises which are unbreakable of glory, life, and joy eternal. And so in the pleasures and the vanities and the comforts of this life, in the pains and the terrors and the uncertainties, the fears and anxieties of this earthly life, God speaks to you. And he calls you to come and to follow and to obey and to seek his face, to come and worship, to journey in the power of Christ back to the presence of the Father through many dangers, toils, and snares, but through it all, Though the power, all the powers of hell should try to bar the way, we journey on. Grace has brought us safe thus far, and grace will lead us home. Amen.